Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat this morning. Let's go ahead and get ready and get into God's Word. So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles, your smartphones, your tablets, or whatever it is that you like to use to get your eyes on God's Word. And would you meet me this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 23? Be continuing our series that we've been going verse by verse by verse through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, we're calling that series The Heart of the Matter, digging into Saul and David's lives. And so we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 23 this morning if you, if, as we continue that. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would still really encourage you and challenge you to find a way to, to get your eyes on God's Word so that you can follow along with us and see what God's Word says. And there's a couple of ways you could do that. You just pull out a phone and Google 1 Samuel 23, and it'll pop right up for you. Or if you prefer a paper Bible, there's some in the table in the back uh, that you could make use of. And if you don't have one at all, we would just love for you to, to take one of those Bibles and keep it as our gift to you and make it, make it your own, use it, mark it up, study it, and, and we'd love for you to have God's Word in that way. As you're turning there, I want to. I asked Pastor Dan yesterday. I reached out to him and the, and the DR team of uh, what would you like for me to, to relay to the church this morning. Uh, and he he sends their greetings and their love and their appreciation for uh, the prayers that you have been uh, giving on, on their behalf the past week as they've been in the Dominican Republic serving. Uh, they're coming back. Uh, Monday night or Tuesday morning, depending on how you classify around midnight. And so, uh, but today is a big day that you would continue praying for them. As, as I, I preached this morning, he's going to be preaching at a church in the Dominican Republic. And then even more importantly, tonight, he has the privilege of preaching at a kind of a regional uh, evangelistic rally in the Dominican Republic tonight. So uh, just be in prayer for him as he speaks, uh, that the Spirit of God would be moving uh, on people's hearts and saving souls. And uh, they greatly appreciate your prayers and can't wait to be back with you. But again, 1 Samuel 23 this morning. And so let's, uh, as you're there, let's go ahead and stop and pause and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together in his word. Father, you have no rival and you have no equal. It's the truth that we sang and it's the truth that we, that we cling to this morning. We uh, confess that as we come to your word this morning that we need you greatly in this moment. I need you as I preach. We need you as we walk through life. And so uh, we have nowhere else to turn but to you. And we do that through your word now. And, and so we, we, we believe that every single word of scripture is inerrant, inspired by your Holy Spirit for, for doctrine and for reproof and for training in righteousness. And so as we turn to it now, Father, would, you, would your spirit be active and moving among us to encourage us, to lift our eyes, to give us hope this morning, to challenge us, to equip us, and ultimately to make us look more like Jesus. That's our goal this morning. As always, Father, and it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, the great theologian slash professional boxer, whichever way you want to classify him, Mike Tyson, uh, once said that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. You found that to be true in your life? Maybe uh, you had big plans up ahead. You had it all figured out. You had all the details planned out about how they were going to unfold. But then life happened. Life happened and things didn't pan out the way that you had planned. Maybe it was a medical emergency that, that shattered your plans for the future. Maybe it was a, a coworker's lack of integrity that, that threw your career path off track. Maybe it was the, the habitual sin of someone very close to you that, that as you were around them kept you from realizing all your hopes and dreams and, and the happiness that you thought lie ahead. But for whatever reason it was, metaphorically speaking, at some point in the past, you got punched in the mouth. 
And so whether you like it or not, you you suddenly found yourself living in the middle of the trenches of what really can only be described as 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 an emotional or a spiritual, maybe even a physical battlefield. And you're left wondering now this morning, now what? What do I do now? What's what's next? What am I going to do now? Again, because everybody has a plan, right? Until they get punched in the mouth. And so often when we find ourselves living in the trenches, surrounded by the shattered glass of of our broken dreams, we take on a completely reactionary posture. We feel like we've been pushed off balance to the point where all we can do is live moment by moment and, and just try to take the hits as they keep coming and, and maybe somehow keep our, our heads above water. We don't think there's any way we could ever do more than, than just survive and, and thriving in some point in the future is, is completely out of the question in our minds at this point. David could relate to that. He knew the feeling well. He was the man that God had chosen to be the next king of Israel, but at the same time, he was a man living on the run from the reigning king of Israel, slash his father-in-law, slash his best friend's dad, slash his former employer, so to speak. David knew what it was like to literally be, be pushed in the trenches, yet he didn't let those trenches dictate how he was going to face life. So for those of us who find ourselves living in the trenches this morning, I want to submit to you that Scripture offers us a better way forward than simply resigning ourselves to living a reactionary life. Now listen, you might not find a detailed plan in the back of your Bibles, back by the maps, that that completely outlines the step-by-step instructions of how how to work your way out of whatever crisis you're facing this morning. But what if there were some principles that we could determine to live by ahead of time So that when the time came, regardless of the circumstances that we were facing, we could face those circumstances. We could navigate the trenches of the hardships of life as faithful followers of Jesus. What if if that existed? That's called wisdom. And God's word gives it to us, and it's what we're called to. So as we look at 1 Samuel 23 this morning, here's our our big idea this morning. Our one-sentence overarching theme of this passage that'll tie it together for us. Our big idea this morning is this. God calls his people to walk in the way of wisdom even when life gets hard. Again, God calls his people to walk in the way of wisdom, even when life gets hard. You feel that? Well, let's look for some wisdom for the trenches this morning in 1 Samuel 23. As we, as we do that, we're going to see four guiding principles, four determinations that we can make ahead of time to, to walk in the way of wisdom regardless of what we're facing. So if you're ready, I'm ready. Let's go ahead and jump in. First, the way of wisdom says this. The way of wisdom says, I will do the right thing even when it's not my responsibility. That I will do the right thing even when it's not my responsibility. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel 23, look with me at the first five verses of 1 Samuel 23. And here's what it says. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. 
Well, our passage this morning picks up with David on the run, just as he has been for quite some time, and, and, and just as he's going to remain for still some more time. But, but David himself actually isn't the focal point of these first five verses here. Right away, the author of 1 Samuel wants to draw our attention, not to David himself, but to what's going on about four miles away from where David is at this moment in a, in a town called Keilah. Akilah was a little town on the, on the very western edges of Judah, right next to the Philistine border. And, and because of its location, Akilah was basically isolated from the rest of God's people, which left it vulnerable to attacks. And not only was it vulnerable to attacks, it was actually a very attractive target because it was also positioned in a very ag- agriculturally productive region. So in other words, what's going on here is the, the bully Philistines next door saw Keilah as a great opportunity to, to swoop in and attack during the middle of harvesting season to, to bolster their food supply without having to do any of the work of, of growing it themselves. And so that's exactly what happened in these verses. It's harvesting season in Keilah, and the Philistines have swept in uh, not just to, to steal their lunch money, as the bullies do, so to speak, but, but to actually take their lunch and probably even worse. Now, sometimes what Scripture doesn't say here uh, gives us uh, just as much insight into a situation as what Scripture actually does say, and I think this is one of those times. So this is going to be the audience participation part of the, of the sermon, so let me ask you a few questions. Go ahead and answer out loud, but, but here's the first question. At this point in Israel's history, who is the reigning current king of Israel? Anybody? Saul, right? Good. Number one, you got right. Okay, so then as the current reigning king of Israel, who would have been responsible for protecting his countrymen from an attack? Saul. Great, you guys are doing great here. Last question, final question on the exam. Who's missing from these five verses that we just read? Saul. But David's not. See, Saul should have been the one that was rushing to protect his people from the Philistines, but he's missing in action. It doesn't say this, but it's hard to imagine that Saul, being the king of Israel, was unaware of what was going on. Surely somebody had told him, but he's preoccupied with doing some other things at this point in his reign, namely trying to kill David. That's what's on his mind. But David, on the other hand, David heard about a people that were in need and decided to do the right thing, even though it wasn't his responsibility. Let's just think about that for a second. When David heard that Keilah was under attack, how, how easy would it have been for him to, uh, to just barely look up from scrolling his iPhone in whatever cave he was hiding in and, and, and say, you know what, last time I checked, I'm not the king of Israel yet. Like, this, is, this is not my problem what's going on here. I am not the king yet. That's been, Saul's made that abundantly clear. So this is, this is not my problem. In fact, you know what, I've got enough of my own problems right now that to, to get involved with what's going on with a bunch of farmers' lives in the middle of nowhere. So just keep me out of this. But that's not what David did. No, when David heard what was happening, even though it wasn't technically his responsibility to do anything, he got on his knees. He said, God, what do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? If you want me to go, I'll go. If you want me to serve, I'll serve. Whatever it is, I'm your servant. I'm here to serve you, Lord. And God said, yes, go help those people. But you'll notice in the text that not all of David's men were on the same page here because they, they hear what David's doing here and they kind of call a timeout and, and say, listen, David, just, just in case you've forgotten, uh, we're not actually a bunch of Navy SEALs here. Uh, like Saul's men are afraid of the Philistines and we're afraid of Saul's men. So I'm not quite sure how good I feel about jumping some, uh, some steps in the, in the military food chain here, David. I don't think this is a good idea. But David's determined to do the right thing, even when it's not his responsibility. Listen, and even when it would have come at great personal risk and potential cost to himself. 
And so he went back to the Lord and confirmed it again. And the Lord said, yes, go, I've, I've got this. I'll take care of you. And then David and his men went and fought with the Philistines and saved Keilah. Listen, how often do you excuse yourself from doing the right thing by telling yourself, it's not my responsibility? How often do you see a need to be met or a wrong to be righted or a soul to be comforted or a sin to be stopped, but then you excuse yourself from taking action by, by saying something all, along the lines of like, you know, I, I'm not in charge here. <laughs> I'm not in charge here, so I'm just going to mind my own business, keep my hands out of it. I am not in charge. Or you know what, I, I'm not a spiritual leader, so you know what, when that's happening at church, I'm not a spiritual leader, so I'm going to leave that to the quote-unquote experts. I'm, I'm staying out of it. Or how about this one? I'm already living in the trenches. I've already got enough stuff going on in my life. I've got enough trials that I'm going through. I, 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 can't, I can't let myself get involved in somebody else's stuff. Or maybe worst of all, how about this one? You know what, maybe I'm just not so sure I care. You know what, those people, they got themselves into that mess. They can get themselves out of it. Ever say something like that? Friends, the way of wisdom says, I will do the right thing even when it's not my responsibility. This is what we're called to as followers of Christ. In fact, not only is it the way of wisdom, this is the way of Christ. See, our sin was not Jesus' problem. It was not Jesus' responsibility. But because he loves us, he made it his responsibility. He chose to step in. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ, the very Son of God himself, temporarily set aside his glory in heaven and came to this earth to take on human flesh and live the perfect life that you and I could never live so that he could be the perfect sinless sacrifice that we needed to give but could not give for our sins. So he went to the cross and he took all of our sins, our faults, our responsibilities. He took all of that on himself and died on the cross in our place. He was buried and rose from the dead three days later to... to, to save us and to make eternal life possible for us if we would just repent or turn from our sins and place all of our hope for salvation in him alone and what he's done for us on the cross. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for you. I would love to talk with you after the service about what the gospel would mean in your life. But friends, we are called to do the right thing even when it's not our responsibility. The way of wisdom is the way of Jesus. That's why Paul commands us in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. In, in those verses, he says this. He says, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, think like this. Take on this mentality, which is yours already in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to on a cross. In other words, he did the right thing even when it wasn't his responsibility. He saw our need and he stepped in when he could have stepped back and we are called to do the same for others. So first, the way of wisdom says, I will do the right thing even when it's not my responsibility. Second, this morning, the way of wisdom says this, says, I will submit to God's word even when I don't like what it says. That I will submit to God's word even when I don't like what it says. Look back with me at 1 Samuel 23, verses 6 through 14. The passage goes on. It says, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with, a great, with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, 
And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to go to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will surely come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hands of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Well, it's really not breaking news at all to us that at this point, Saul is trying to kill David. Obviously, we know that's been going on for a while now in 1 Samuel. And because it happened over 3,000 years ago and over 6,000 miles away, it's really easy for us to, to skim over passages in the Bible like this and just kind of ignore the reality of the situation. But these are real people facing real life. And when we look through the window that Scripture gives us into their lives, we, we seal their real thoughts and their real motivations we find that they're really not all that different from us. So we are susceptible to the same types of thinking when we don't submit every area of our lives to the authority of God's word. See, in these few verses that we just read, Saul and David's relationships, how they relate to God's word is, is really held up side by side so that we can look at them and compare them. And so to sum them up, one of the two, we won't tell you which one yet, but one of the two hears God's word and says, I'm going to do what I want to do and I'm going to think how I want to think. The other one hears God's word and says, God, I'm going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to think how you want me to think. So let's take a look. First, let's look at Saul and how he relates to God's word. See, submitting himself to the authority of God's word uh, has been an ongoing problem for Saul, to say the least. Uh, we, know, we know this. We've seen it countless times. All the way back in chapter 13, Saul directly disobeyed what God had clearly said about giving sacrifices because in Saul's mind, Samuel didn't show up in time. So like, I'm just going to handle this myself. I'm going to ignore what God has said, and I'm just going to take matters into my own hands and do it the way I want to do it. Then again, in chapter 15, Saul directly disobeyed what God had clearly said about eliminating the, uh, the Amalekites, all because he thought it would be more advantageous to himself to, to keep some of the spoils of war for himself. And in both cases, after Saul refused to submit himself to the authority of God's word and what God had already spoken, God spoke again. And in both cases, here's what God said. He basically said, Saul, I am done with you. The, the throne that, that you think is yours is no longer yours. In fact, I'm removing my hand of blessing from you and your life, and I'm, I'm taking it away from you, and I'm going to place it on another man, a man after my own heart. But Saul isn't going to submit to that either. And we haven't even mentioned uh, something as simple that, that David might want us to bring up, that God has spoken, uh, thou shalt not murder. I think David would appreciate that, but Saul is not submitting to anything in God's word. So here we are back in, in chapter 23, and someone tells Saul that David is in Keilah, he's nearby. And then look at Saul's response to that news in verse 7. He says, God has given David into my hand. He's excited about this. In other words, instead of Saul submitting himself to God's word, even when he doesn't like what it says, even when, when, when Saul should have said something along the lines of, you know, of course, I really still want to be king. 
But God has spoken, and I'm not the king anymore. And for me to continue pursuing this would be sin. Instead of having that right response to God's word, instead, Saul, Saul basically says, what a blessing. Do you see how God's working here? He, he praised the Lord. He has given my enemy into my own hands. He's, he's trapped him for me. He's making this easy. You know what? You know what? This is just a total God thing. I can feel it. Those are scary words. So often, we justify our desire to sin by by speaking on behalf of God, the very opposite of what he has already spoken for himself. Let me say that again. So often we justify our desires for sin by speaking on behalf of God, the very opposite of what he has already spoken for himself. Here's what that looks like. Maybe, maybe you haven't taken any steps towards it yet, but you're considering or maybe even actively pursuing what would be an inappropriate relationship outside of the, uh, the God-defined boundaries of marriage, being one man and one woman for a lifetime. And instead of saying, God has spoken and I will submit, you say something along the line, well, well God brought us together. Hey, you really don't think God would want us to be unhappy, would you? Or you sit down at the end of a long day when you're tired and stressed and about to put something on TV or, or pull something up on your phone that you know would be a sin for you to watch because it would be, it would be feeding the appetites that God has commanded you to starve. And instead of saying, God has spoken and I will submit, you say something along the lines of, it's been a long week. I, I earned this one. I'll, I'll fix these problems next week. But you know, in, the, in this moment, I, I'm fine. I, I've got everything under control. Friends, that kind of thinking leads to sin and suffering. But that's how Saul related to God's word. He said, God, I, I know what you've said, but I'm going to do what I want to do. David, on the other hand, said, God, I know what you've said, and I'm going to do what you want me to do. See, when David heard that Saul knew where he was and that Saul was coming to get him, it would have been really easy for David uh, to, to, to say something along the lines of, of, of all right, boys, here, here, here's our time. God's, God's bringing him to us. He's bringing him right to us. We've got him trapped. We've got the tactical advantage. We're going to just take him out right now and take what's ours. But that's not what David did. No. The first thing David did when he heard that Saul was coming was to get on his knees and go to the Lord in prayer using what was called the ephod, which is basically what priests would use to discern the will of the Lord. It's how God spoke to his people in those times when they were looking for guidance. For us, when we want to hear God speak, we open our Bibles because that's where God has already spoken. That's where we go for guidance. And so David asks the Lord if Saul's coming, and the Lord says yes. And so then David asks if the people of Keilah are going to hand him over to Saul. And again, the Lord says yes. So, so David and his men flee into the uncomfortable, unpleasant wilderness. Listen, for sure when this is not what they want to do right now. For sure this is not what they would like to do. Why? Because pay attention to how David approaches God and his word. Every time he speaks to the Lord in these few verses, he refers to himself as God's servant. In verse 10, O Lord God, your servant has heard. Verse 11, will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Please, God, tell your servant. Listen, there's only two postures you can take in your relationship to God's word. The posture of a servant or the posture of one who demands to be served. See, the posture of a servant holds God's word up here above them and says, God, God you have spoken. But the posture of one who demands to be served holds God's word down here beneath them and says, you know what? I have spoken. I'm going to do what I want to do. So which posture will you choose this morning? The one who chooses the way of wisdom in the trenches is the one who says, I will submit to God's word even when I don't like it, what it says. 
Moving on, next number three this morning, the way of wisdom says, I will live in biblical community even when I find it inconvenient. That I will live in biblical community even when I find it inconvenient. We see an incredible example of biblical community in verses 15 through 18. So look back with me there. Here's what it says. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose up and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Again, generally, we know that David is on the run here, but let me just point out that in these four verses specifically, aside from just generally, specifically, David's on the run again. As in, he's not where he was like three verses before that. He's on the run again. So just, just, just stop and put yourself in David's shoes for just a minute. You've been pushed literally into the trenches, even though you've been called to the throne. At this point, you're in the wilderness, scrounging for food hoping to find shelter, maybe even clinging to life itself, how would you feel in this moment? Lonely? Discouraged? Anxious? Maybe questioning every decision that you've ever made in life and and wondering how you got to this point? Probably. So whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, a hero of the faith or a no-name living in obscurity, no matter how you're wired, God has never designed you to face life in the trenches alone. We need to know that. And what we see in these four verses is an incredible picture of the beauty of biblical community in the trenches of life. So what I want, to see, uh, want us to see here in David and Jonathan's relationship in this particular moment is, is, is three realities about encouragement You can see three realities about encouragement here from their relationship. And so uh, first, I want us to see that that encouragement is needed universally. The encouragement is needed universally. universally. See, in our culture, most of us are determined to never admit weakness. Never, under any circumstances, are you going to let someone else know that you're struggling and you need help. Just just keep it all inside. Just struggle your way through if you need to, but you're not going to tell anybody. Friends, not only is this unhealthy... It's even unbiblical. We all need encouragement at times, even David. Clearly, David is afraid in this moment because at the very least, when when Jonathan shows up, what he leads with is is, do not fear. And so I'm just going to go on a limb here and say that that Jonathan probably wouldn't have said do not fear if David wasn't fearing. So it's okay. Listen, even the manliest of men, the strongest of saints, the, the most courageous of warriors will find themselves in need of encouragement at some point in their lives. One of my absolute heroes in life and ministry it was the 19th century uh, London pastor that was nicknamed the Prince of Preachers. His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It's not an exaggeration at all. This isn't just my biased opinion that he was one of the greatest pastors and preachers that the world has ever known. Yet, even he was well acquainted with what he called the dark night of the soul, depression. See, tragedy struck at his church when someone who resented the growth of his ministry started yelling fire in a, in a crowded church service of about 10,000 people that caused several people to be trampled to their deaths and, and sending Spurgeon into a, a, a tragic depression that really lasted the rest of his life. He, he battled it. And in a, one of 
what I think is the most impactful and important things that he ever wrote in a chapter in a book to fellow pastors called, in, in the lectures to my students, he wrote a chapter called The Minister's Fainting Fits, where he allowed himself to just be laid bare and vulnerable about, about the, the, the hardships of life and the, the discouragement and the depression. So all that to say, everyone needs encouragement. Even Spurgeon, even David, even you, we need to be real about. See, friends, it's okay to not be okay. To let your guard down. Let others into your life to encourage you. Because again, encouragement is needed universally. Second, encouragement requires intentionality. Requires intentionality. See, some of us are just naturally wired as encouragers. Others of us have to work at it. But for all of us, if we want to be successful encouragers, it's going to require that we be intentional. I don't know Jonathan here well enough to know if he's naturally wired as an encourager, as an encourager if this was just who he was or if he had to, to work at it. But what we can see here is that he was being very intentional when his friend needed encouragement. Like, just think of how inconvenient this trip would have been. It would have been inconvenient for him to go encourage David. He would have had to sneak away from all of his father's men and, and, and travel out into the wilderness of Ziph where there were no Marriott's or Airbnbs. This would have been a big trip. It would have required lots of planning and packing and, and strategy to get there. Not to mention that, it would have included plenty of risk both for Jonathan and for David. In other words, it would have inquired, required intentionality. And so friends, let me just ask you, what, what if we share just a fraction of that kind of intentionality when it comes to encouraging others? What kind of a difference would it make in the lives of our loved ones if every single day, every single one of us made it our goal to intentionally encourage someone else? Now, I've got good news for you. The good news is you probably don't have to travel into a wilderness of Ziff where there's all kinds of bears and things that are come out and get you. That's, that's probably not the case here, so that's the good news. But it might mean that you need to set a recurring reminder in your calendar on your phone for maybe a, a particular time every day or week under the, under, the, under the label of send encouraging text so that when that thing shows up in your phone, you just scroll through your phone and find somebody like, I'm going to encourage that person today. And you send them a text. It might mean you keep the postal service afloat by buying some stamps and, and sending some snail mail with a, with a handwritten letter just, just telling someone how much they mean to you to encourage them. It might mean going to small group and then pulling somebody aside after, after they've shared and, and just saying, hey, I, I just want to let you know I, I see God working in your life. I want to encourage you in that because it's an encouragement to me and just God's doing a thing and, and I see it and I want you to be encouraged by that. Or in a time of crisis, it might mean getting in the car or jumping on a plane and driving or flying to where a friend is just so you can sit and weep with them. Notice all of those might means require different levels of sacrifice on your end, but all of them require intentionality. So first, encouragement is needed universally. Second, encouragement requires intentionality. And third, encouragement points vertically. It points vertically. See, what most of us think of when we think of encouragement, we think of a, of a pep talk and a, bat, and a pat on the back that says, you know what, you can do it. I, I believe in you. You've got this. I'm, I'm for you. I'm rooting for you. I'm cheering for you. But that's not the type of encouragement that we pretty much ever see in Scripture. Now, that type of encouragement might work on the Little League field, but, but when you find someone in the, the deep trenches of despair, you're going to need to find a bigger and deeper source of encouragement than that. That's why verse 16 says that Jonathan rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand, not in himself, but in God. 
He strengthened his hand in God. So here's the difference. Horizontal encouragement, the whole you can do it mentality, think positive vibes here, might push someone in a, in a particular direction. It might influence them. It might, it might move them around a little bit. But vertical encouragement lifts our eyes to the Lord. It gives us hope. And that's what we need when we're down in the trenches, to, to look up, to have hope, to remember God's faithfulness. And that's what Jonathan does here. He strengthens David in God. He encourages him vertically. How? By pointing him back to God's promises. By pointing him to the reality of what God has already declared. In verse 17, he says, Do not fear. Why? For the, Lord, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. That's not wishful thinking. That's what God has already said. He's pointing back to the promises of God. William Carey is known as the father of modern missions. In the late 1700s, during the early years of his time as a missionary in India, uh, William contracted malaria. It's a hard time. Not too long after that, his five-year-old son named Peter died of severe dysentery. He and his family were 15,000 miles from home, surrounded by literally millions of unbelievers, and and the pressure of everything that they had to go through uh, got so bad, built up so much, that his his wife started experiencing a mental breakdown, started uh, started having hallucinations, and and, and started accusing everyone of everything, and and had to uh, to be restrained because she kept pulling a knife on her husband because she, she just couldn't handle the weight of it anymore. But then on October 4th, 1794, William Carey received a letter from a pastor friend of his named Samuel Pierce. Let me just tell you, Samuel Pierce knew how to strengthen his hand in the Lord. Here's what that letter said. He received the letter that said, Brother, I long to stand by your side and participate in all the vicissitudes of the attack. An attack which nothing but cowardice can make unsuccessful. Yes, the captain of our salvation marches at our head. Sometimes he may withdraw his presence as it seems, but never his power to try our prowess with our spiritual arms and celestial armor. Oh, what cannot a lively faith do for the Christian soldier? It will bring the deliverer from the skies. It will array him as with a vesture dipped in blood. It will place him in the front of the battle and put a new song in his mouth, a song that says these made war with the lamb, but the lamb shall overcome them. Yes, he shall. The victory is sure before we enter the field. The crown is already prepared to adorn our brows, even that crown of glory which fadeth not away, and already we have resolved what to do with it. We will lay it at the conqueror's feet. Say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name give glory, while all heaven unites in the, in the chorus singing, worthy is the Lamb. Do you see how saturated in the promises of God that letter is? See how vertical it is? That's biblical encouragement in the arena of biblical community. So maybe you hear that and you say, man, I'm not, I'm not gifted with words like that. I, I can't do that. I don't, I don't know my Bible like that well enough to, 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 to encourage somebody like that. So what do you got for me? How am I going to do this? Well, here's, here's what you do. You start an encouragement toolbox. You get a journal or a notebook, and as you read your Bible each day and come across comforting or encouraging verses and and promises, you write them down so that that when someone is in the trenches and you need to encourage them, you can pull out your toolbox and and go back to the toolbox and pull out an encouraging tool and give it to them and say, "This this is what I want to encourage you with right now. We have a good God. 
It takes intentionality, but remember the way of wisdom says, I will live in biblical community even when I find it inconvenient. It's going to take some work. And fourth, finally this morning, the way of wisdom says, I will press on in faith even when it seems like a retreat. I will press on in faith even when it seems like a retreat. One last time, look back with me at verses 19 through 29. To wrap up the chapter, here's what it says. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horish, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of the Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down. And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides it and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search out him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah, south, the south of the Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. Saul and his men were closing in on David and his his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Saul's continuing to close in on David, and apparently he has eyes literally everywhere because now he's cooperating with the locals. David's in the wilderness of Ziph, and the Ziphites went and told Saul that, that David was hiding among them in their neck of the woods. And, and obviously that piece of information would have been exciting to Saul. He, he wants to, to get after these people, but he also knew that as the song says, wise men say only fools rush in. And so instead of heading right there, He asks the Ziphites for three pieces of information. He wants to know, number one, where David usually goes, so maybe he can plan an attack during the the pre-dawn hours while while David's still asleep. He wants to know who David hangs around with. He wants to eliminate everyone that's been cooperating with David, and he also wants to know where David hides so that maybe he he can catch him in some other things. Long story short, Saul and David start playing a game of cat and mouse until verse 26 when they both find themselves on the same mountain. And Saul tells his men to, to split up and go circle the mountain so that maybe they can, they can trap David on the other side. And they get way too close for comfort as David's trying to retreat. But in a piece of providential timing, the Philistines attack Israel somewhere else and word gets to Saul. And so, so God preserves David by, by that and, and they, they run away and David escapes to a place called En Gedi. Listen, the real question here for us is not, what are the best tactics for mountainous warfare? That's not the question that we have to wrestle with here. The question for us is, when is enough enough? When is this going to be all over? How much much more do these men have to take? When can they stop running? Because this is getting old. Again, remember, these are not professional warriors. They're they're not Navy SEALs. They're They're not trained for this. You want to know who these men were? Back in chapter 22, verse 2, it tells us that David's men were, quote, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul. In other words, we'll call them the misfit militia. 
That's these men. That's, that's who David has in the trenches with him. That's who he's going to war with. So I just want us to use our, our sanctified imagination a little bit. And, and I can just imagine the, the, the grumbling in the camp when they're on the run for like the 15th time this week. Like, why are we always retreating? We're always running. And this whole journey seems like, like nothing but an adventure and setbacks. And, you know, quite honestly, I'm just not sure how much more I'm willing to take of this. I've had just about enough. And so, so somebody says, well, let's, let's go talk to David about it. His tent's like over there. Let's just go bring it up. So they do. I can imagine the whole group goes over to find David in his tent. And the first guy says, Captain David, where are we going this time? What's next? Just, just give us that piece of information. And David, David responds, well, we're going... Um, Wherever. Wherever. What do you mean wherever, David? Where's wherever? And David just says, just come and follow me and you'll find out. And so the next guy says, well, David, I didn't sign up for all this. This is not why I joined up. This is, you're putting us in some risky positions. And David says, I know. I know. I'm aware. But don't worry. I'm in this with you and I've got your back. So someone else says, well, how, how are we going to get through? How are we going to survive? That, that last one was a, was a really close call, David. How are we going to get through this? And so on and on and on it goes. Questions from discouraged men to their leaders. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. You're discouraged right now. You've got some questions for your leader. So you've been knocked into the trenches of life. And so you go to Jesus. You say, Jesus... Where are you going to take us next? What do you got up ahead for us? Where where is this all going? And then you're just reminded that when Jesus called you, he simply said, follow me. He didn't include a whole lot of details. So you lean in a little more and you say, but but in following you, it just just feels like I've signed my own death sentence, Jesus. That's how it feels. And, And Jesus says, yeah. In fact, whoever finds his own life, whoever's trying to keep their own life for themselves, they're, they're going to lose it. But whoever loses his own life for my sake, it is who finds it. See, it's in the dying to yourself that you begin to live. So you say, well, I just didn't think it was going to be this way. I wasn't expecting all these hardships and troubles and trials and, and all these things that I'm facing, the sleepless nights, the tossing and turning, the, the, the tears, the, the, the I can't do anything. I wasn't expecting all of that. So how, what's your plan to get me through this? How am I going to survive Jesus? So Jesus just takes you by the hand. He looks you in the eye. He says, listen, I will never leave you or forsake you. I want you to come to me all you who are weak and weary and worn down and discouraged and struggling and heavy laden and I will give you rest to take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will have rest for your souls so press on keep walking keep moving even when it feels like it's a retreat so here's what this passage is teaching us. It's teaching us that in the laying down of our lives to serve and follow King Jesus, we join him in the path of suffering, knowing and trusting that he will lead us home. And the path that he uses to lead us is the way of wisdom, and it's paved with the gospel that we walk on. And that's what we're called to even when life gets hard. It may not be easy, but you will not be alone. 
So let me pray for us as the worship team comes. Father, thank you for the promises of scripture that you give us. Thank you for the promise that you will walk with us through hard things. Even when we don't want to come and walk in them, even when we did not expect ourselves to be walking in them. Thank you for the promise that you are walking with us. Thank you for the guidance of scripture that, that even though we aren't given step-by-step blueprints of how to walk out of the current crises that we face, Father, thank you for, for the guidance that you give us in partnership with the Holy Spirit to, to walk in the way of wisdom. So Father, I ask for those that are hurting here this morning that you would encourage them You would help us as a church to encourage each other, to lift each other's eyes vertically to you, to be intentional about encouragement. I ask that there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, that you would be drawing them to yourself, knowing that this is the only way they can walk. This is the only hope for salvation. Just thank you for your word. Thank you for walking with us and be glorified in the worship that we give. In Jesus' name, amen.